Welcome to Now with Steve Rio. On this podcast, I seek to define what it means to live a good life. How do we stay connected and aligned with our values and our purpose? How do we prioritize what's most important to us? And how do we optimize and make the most of the time we have in this life? Today's conversation is with Dr. Lawrence Chang. Lawrence is the co-founder and director of Connect Healthcare Center for Integrative and Functional Medicine. You can find them online at connecthealthcare.ca. Dr. Chang is trained in family medicine, emergency medicine, and has a master's in public health from Harvard University. He's also an advisor to Nature of Work and has been a personal guide and mentor for me in my own personal health over the last six or seven years now. And this conversation takes a little bit of a different format than we usually do. We don't go so much into personal background uh, and personal story, though I'd love to in the future with Dr. Chang because he's a fascinating guy. Um, I really wanted to leverage his expertise and talk about a lot of the things that we cover in the Nature of Work program and what our system is all about. So we talk about things like resiliency, stress management, sleep, We talk about the impacts of technology use on the brain, and he introduces a new concept called noisy brain, which I think you'll find really fascinating. Dr. Chang is such an expert in his fields, and I think you'll find this conversation really valuable in terms of how you think about your habits and how you approach your day. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And if you do, make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And if you have one extra minute, please leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. You can find me on Instagram, at Steve Rio. And you can find out more about how to transform the way you work, live, and feel with the Nature of Work Foundations program at natureofwork.co. Hey folks, just a quick note before we jump into this episode, the recording of the conversation is slightly distorted, especially on my end for the first 10 or so minutes of the conversation, but it does get better, so please stick with it. I think you're going to get a lot out of this one. Let's jump into it. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, man, and so thank you. And um, maybe just tell us a little bit about your practice and about what, you know, quickly about your background and then then about your your core practice. Sure, that's great. Uh, Steve, thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. This is exciting. Um, Yeah, it's been a journey um, for sure. I mean, I think... The short version of it is I, I practice emergency medicine for most of my medical career. And I realized actually pretty early on that although Western medicine, conventional medicine is really great for acute stuff, mechanical, structural things, we can fix things, we can fix broken bones, we can change out heart valves. A lot of things, I really felt like we didn't really have the right understanding. And we were doing a lot of Band-Aid treatments, you know, putting a Band-Aid on, Band-Aid works for a little while, it falls off, and then I see in the back in the eMERGE department. So pretty early on in my career, I was thinking, you know, there's something I'm missing here. Like, I, they don't really understand, I didn't really get trained on. And I think that was really that journey which kind of said, okay, what I got trained on in conventional medicine is great for certain things, but certainly things around chronic conditions that span years and over multiple systems, we weren't great at, you know, and I think everyone can appreciate this from personal experience, but even how medicine's organized, right? Like you go to the hospital and it's organized by organ systems, right? It's mm-hmm. the cardiologist, the nephrologist, the endocrinologist, and it's all siloed into these different organ specialties, um, which is a great, again, if you've got something very specific to that organ and we can swap it out or do something specific, but, you know, I mean, everything's connected, right? And there's no single, the organ doesn't operate in, 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 in isolation. So I think one of the things I learned was that we don't really have a good way of integrating or having really a systems view of the body. And so that's, I started learning about integrative medicine, functional medicine, and just a much more proactive systems biology approach to um, health and disease. Wow. Yeah. It's so interesting what you just said too. Like not only, you know, you haven't even gotten to the part, you know, in, in your practice, I think where you think about both the mind, the spirit, the body, you know, really thinking about the the human as a holistic, Mm -hmm. um, 
being, but even just on the physical side of health, separating mm-hmm. those into different organs. It actually reminds yeah. I watched Ford versus Ferrari, which is a oh, yeah, great, an action great movie. movie. <laughs> but it was so interesting in that movie how they point out that Ferrari was making these beautiful vehicles by having mm-hmm. one person build the entire engine mm-hmm. and Ford was doing it on a conveyor belt where each person did one piece and there was way more likely to have errors or people didn't know what other people were doing. But um, that's a bit of an aside. So you started Connect Health, which is really focused more on the functional, like on, on a more holistic view. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I think the the frameworks we use at Connect Health is really um, integrative in the sense as just what you said, Steve. I think, yeah, mind, body, spirit, right? So that's the physical body, but the mind and nervous system and even the spiritual aspects, you, you can't ignore those, right? And integration also in the fact that Western biomedical stuff, there's lots of good tools in there, but that's only one part of available tools, right? So we've been always looking for good evidence and scientific rationale for other tools. And that you can find from different systems of medicine, Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic, all these things. And there's emerging evidence that there's benefits to a lot of these different tools. So integrative in terms of increasing our, our toolbox. And yeah, the functional medicine piece, which more and more people are getting more familiar with, is again really looking at function very, very closely instead of just focusing on disease. You know, mm-hmm. and I think the big thing is we in conventional medicine we kind of name the disease and then we often just match a drug therapy to it. And in functional medicine, it's like, okay, well, it can be useful to name the disease, but what led to that imbalance, which led to the disease state? And if we can understand that, we can maybe get more to the root causes of the problem instead of treating you know, the symptoms or the most immediate effects of it, right? Mm-hmm. So that to me is why functional medicine is so powerful. What's the root causes of the imbalances? Yeah. And it's, a, it's I mean, you know, even on a you know, finding out I had kidney disease and that being an autoimmune disease and you really teaching me about what autoimmune diseases are and I, and realizing that that's, you know, largely due to stress and, and, and I can think about how much stress I've always put on myself. That actually was a, a unfortunately, uh, you know, a good turning point for me. I wish it didn't have to be that one, but, <laughs> yeah. but it was like the wake up moment for me that I needed to really shift my habits and think about how I basically how I live, how I eat, how I sleep, uh, all of these components, but also how I work. And that's actually, I, I trace that back to being the very first instance of the beginnings of nature of work, even though I had no idea at that time, you know, and now I think blending a lot more of mindfulness and other things into those, into that practice is what led to nature of work. So um, I think for my hope is that conversations like this and, and programs like nature of work actually help people build better systems so they don't have those big wake-up calls. Um, and I think a lot of what you talk about and the work that you do being trying to be proactive with people is doing the same thing. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And you, um, uh, I'm interested, like I think resiliency is such a big word right now. And with everything going on with uh, the change in the world, COVID, there's lots of political turmoil even if we're in Canada, we seem attached to what's happening in the United States with the federal government and things like that. And so I think resiliency is such a big topic right now. And often I, I think people um, think of resiliency as this big goal that you achieve at some point down the line. And I think the work that you do and the work that we do with the program is really focused on the kind of incremental small things that you change every day that lead to resiliency. Is that how would you characterize that? Or how would you characterize resiliency? Yeah, great question, Steve. Um, yeah, really, I, I, the way I think about resiliency, it, it's, 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 an emerge, it's an emergent property, right? Like you can't just decide I'm going to be resilient, you know, one day, right? So it's a, it's a capacity, it's a resource that we learn and acquire and we nurture, right? So yeah, that's, exactly what you're saying. Um, And it's predicated on so many different things, right? And certainly from our standpoint, the whole physical body um, contributes to physical resiliency as well as mental and emotional resiliency, 
right? And certainly in terms of this COVID-19 pandemic, being resilient means that you have decreased risk for getting the virus, meaning a resilient immune system. And if you do get it, that you bounce back quickly from it. Um, but that also includes all the mental health aspects of it, right? So, yeah, so it's built on many, many different layers. And the more we can learn um, to pay attention to the physical factors, the mental factors, the neurologic factors, the more we build this capacity, like you say, incrementally over time, and this resilience emerges from that continued work and um, consistent work over time, right? Which is, I know, something you talk about and I talk about a lot to our clients. We build it, we maintain it, um, we continue to nurture this, and it grows. Yeah, that's that's a really great description of that. And one of the things uh, that I think you talk a lot about, we talk a lot about in the program is as a first step is starting to get in touch with your natural rhythms uh, of the body. And I think part of that is the circadian rhythm and, and um, kind of consistency around your sleep and your wake times as much as possible and other aspects. Um, yeah, what would you, how would you, how does the circadian rhythm or, or understanding that kind of play into resiliency or play into, you know, physical and mental well-being? Yeah, Steve, it, this this area is so, so interesting now. Um, circadian rhythms um, are what they, the scientists kind of call chronobiology, right, which chrono meaning time in biology. And um, I've actually had a strong interest in this for a long time because as an ER doctor, we're working shifts. Yeah. And so... I mean, I think anyone who does shift work or anyone's pulled an all-nighter realize how bad you feel after that, um, and more so as you get older, right? We get away with it in our 20s. But, um, and, you know, I did a Grand Rounds presentation. It's probably about 10 years ago now at St. Paul's. And unfortunately, what prompted me to investigate this was we had um, two, two nurses, uh, I think fairly young, probably under the age of 50, pass away from breast cancer, um, in our department and our department was really devastated by this. And so I actually looked into the literature, this was again 10 years ago about the effects of circadian, what they call dyssynchrony. And yeah, it's just amazing how much our rhythms um, are like orchestrate all of our biochemistry and physiology really. And when it's disrupted enough with shift workers and nurses in particular doing these long nights for over years. Um, yeah, I found out and I think it's more and more being recognized that cancer risk is increased um, with circadian dyssynchrony and breast cancer in female nurses um, is a known risk now. So yeah, I think that just points to the fact that um, circadian rhythms are so, so important. Um, we're learning that probably every cell in our body its biochemical processes are clock timed. I mean, we, we kind of think of the usual things like cortisol and testosterone levels and certain things that have this, you know, rhythms. But the more you look at a lot of these cellular processes, you realize that there's rhythms and cycles for all of these things. They're finding genes called, which they've called clock. Um, wow. There's actually a gene called clock. And they're finding that somehow cells have, very, very sensitive ways and processes of, of keeping track of time. Um, and that's linked to, you know, our pineal gland, which basically receives light information from the retina and this, what they call suprachiasmic nucleus, which kind of orchestrates all of this chronobiology. Um, wow. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's, is that, it's how, how new is that is the discovery around genes and, and, like the clocking of every cell in the body, is that newer research or? Yeah, that's, I think that's pretty new. I looked at some of that stuff probably a few <clears> years <throat> ago, um, which I think just goes back to this whole thing that, um, you know, every system, like mechanical, electrical, whatever, they can't run at 100% efficiency all the time, right? Mm-hmm. It's just not possible. You're going to wear stuff out, you're going to get poor performance. So um, every system needs to have downtime. And our bodies and cellular machinery is the same way and way more than I think we really recognize. And so the further way we get away from these natural rhythms, the more we're going to get problems 
with our biochemistry and physiology. I mean, that's just the, the big overall part. Right. And, and when you say get away from our natural rhythms, that probably, uh, me, I think that means not only overextending ourselves in terms of the, the lack of sleep or the amount that we're trying to put into one day, but also when we have a highly inconsistent schedule. So, so you know, our, our, if we're consistent with our wake time and sleep time, we're actually going to get better sleep. Our body is going to be, I think, better adjusted in general um, than if we're sort of sporadic about those things. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the sleep stuff is, uh, I mean, of course, I think everyone is realizing the absolute importance and basically non-negotiable aspect of having good sleep, right? Um, I mean, certainly when I went to med school, (laughs) I hope so. I mean, I think for lots of people too, right? It was a badge of honor to say, yeah, I worked 36 hours and I slept for like half an hour and I'm still standing. Um, but I think we're smarter now and realizing, okay, well, I, that was probably not good for ourselves and even patient care, right? Um, right. What would you say yeah. beyond, beyond uh, quantity of sleep, which I think people are starting to get, um, would, like, what, would, what would the other couple of most important aspects of sleep be like, uh, or, or contributing factors to getting a good night's, getting good quality sleep? Yeah, good quality sleep. Um, we're starting to understand more and more what that is. I think it really is getting into the deeper stages of sleep and cycling properly into, you know, stages three and four and the REM sleep and having these proper cycles, which we call, you know, this preservation of, of the correct sleep architecture, right? Um, and if you do that properly and you go into these phases three and fourth, kind of the deep sleep, that seems to be really the repair, restore, maintenance functions, right? Like Mm -hmm. literally that's when you do backup procedures, your hard drive's getting defragged or, you know, neural networks are getting cleaned up, the toxins are getting squeezed out of your brain. So it's pretty clear that if you don't get sufficient sleep in terms of number, but, you know, if we can measure brainwave activity and you don't go into these deep stages, people are going to start to suffer kind of more negative effects. So quality is a big, big issue. Right. And, 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 you know, what we talk about in the program is, is consistency of your sleep timing, uh, uh, trying to be as consistent as possible with when you go to sleep and when you wake up quality, like quantity of course is, is key. Um, and other aspects we talk about is, uh, I think, you know, the kind of the most, the most important are, are your environment in terms of, um, light, light and, and temperature are key, but also what you're doing as you're getting ready for sleep. So what is the last hour of your day look like? And is it, does it include technology or not? Um, do you have a routine around that? I think one of the big things we try and drive home in the program is this, the power of creating routines that actually, I think, create neural triggering for the brain and, and help you, help you just help you get into the mode of sleep. Would you agree with that or change oh, yeah. that at all? No, absolutely. Um, again, you know, just going back to rhythms, right? Um, our body and all systems, they work better when there is a consistent rhythm. So it's been pretty much shown that yeah, having a consistent bedtime and waking up time, it's important because then your systems get more efficient. So your body is expecting you to go to sleep, say around 10.30. Melatonin secretion is going to start about an hour before, and that's going to start signaling sleeping. All these other hormonal signals are going to get lined up. So if you are looking at your environment carefully, which you know I'm sure you guys talk a lot about is light, you know, yeah. um, junk light, blue light from screens. If you're sending your, your physiology the wrong signals it's going to get confused, right? So if you're staring at a screen at 10.30 at night, the blue light's going to inhibit melatonin secretion. And then your body's like, oh, okay, I guess we're not going to sleep. So it's going to suppress the melatonin. And then it might squirt out some more cortisol, which is going to get you more awake, the second wind, whatever. And then you can't sleep. So yeah, it's that synchronization of all Mm -hmm. the signals. So the more we pay attention to our environment and what signals we are sending to our body and our cells, the better quality of you know sleep we're going to get, right? Yeah. And I think that the last piece around the environment piece, we talk about sleep or insomnia 
as using something we call the noise reduction kind of model, which basically says that, I mean, your body and brain and your cells, they all need to sleep. So the reason why you can't sleep or having problems with sleep is because there's noise in the system. So it's either environmental noise, which could be light or noise or, I mean, whatever these extraneous, you know, physical external things. But the other one is body noise. So do you have inflammation in your body? Um, are there things going on that's causing pain or discomfort that's going to present noise so your body can't actually relax? And then the last noise, which is a big issue, is mind noise. So again, like you're saying, what are you doing the last few hours in the evening? And if you're working or overstimulated or hyper-arousing your nervous system by watching CNN, <laughs> um, right. it's going to it's going to create this noise, um, this mind noise, and it's going to be much harder for the brain to go to sleep and, and go into these deeper levels of uh, restoration. Wow, that's such a great description. I've never heard the term mind noise and, and body noise. That makes total sense. And I think, you know, often when we're talking about sleep, so sleep is the last module in the program, but what, and what we sort of don't mention, but I know is true is that in the earlier parts of the program, we're building mindfulness and breaks into the day and trying to reduce the amount of time spent on technology, which typically means away from social media and news and all the kind of hyper-stimulating sources. Um, and that when you create mindfulness and you and you start to lower the stress level throughout your day, you're actually going to sleep better because you're you're lo you're lowering that mind noise, right? Is that what you're kind of getting at there? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think I see this um, all the time in my clinical practice, not just at the clinic, but in the eMERGE department. Yeah. Um, I think we mentioned, like, when I talked to you last, like, well, I've been talking to a lot of people, we're seeing so much mental health stress-related issues coming to the eMERGE department now. It seems like there's been a delay. I think people were holding it all together in March and April. Yeah. And But I think, you know, J June, July, I think, things are kind of falling off. The wheels are kind of falling off, essentially. Um, but yeah, I think it's this, this hyper arousal, which is, again, like you said, the evening's super important, but just throughout the whole day. Um, and so, and I think, you know, the morning routine is so important in that regard too. Like how do you set up your nervous system? But if you're hyper aroused all day, and that's sending signals potentially to you know, more of the stress response, the sympathetic nervous system, then that the tone of your nervous system is going to be tilted towards this flight or fright. And that's going to release all these neurochemicals, cortisol, epinephrine, all these things. And they're going to be at higher levels. And that sum total over the day is going to affect the quality of your sleep. So yeah, it's not just the evening. It's just you know, how are you managing these load levels, cognitive load um, throughout the day? Yeah, it, it, it's as you're speaking, and I'm kind of thinking about this, like, really, I, I think what people we need to recognize is that this, we are a holistic system that all of these aspects play into the next one. So if we are in hyper arousal mode all day, because we're stressed out, and so we're you know, maybe it's because of COVID, maybe it's because of political issues, maybe we're worried about our job or just the uncertainty in general is causing us to move to our phones as a reaction to that. Like, I think when you get stressed out, you you look for something to pacify the mind, but then often what's on the internet is doing the opposite of that. But we get into these cycles, then we don't sleep as well. And that leads to uh, like lower, you know, our, our body being in worse shape and our minds being in worse shape, which kind of creates these cycles, right? And I think looking at that holistically, it really comes down to, you know, these small daily habits. Again, back to resiliency around that too. Hey, is like thinking about these is these small, these these incremental changes you can make, and and be consistent with that, which starts to bring down the stress levels you're feeling, which starts to make the sleep work, your sleep go better, which improves and it, it creates a virtuous cycle, I guess, in response. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's super interesting, and um. I think like this was a, a number of years ago we spoke about this, but I'm interested in what your thoughts are around what our technology, like the, I guess the, the, 
the nature of the our technology exposure currently is very bite-sized. It's very small increment. It's you know high dopamine. Um, you know, and with thinking of social media and news and everybody sort of vying for our attention and this again this hyper arousal we're talking about beyond the the stress it's putting on our brain uh, and our, and on ourselves. What what do you think it's what what do you think it's doing to the brain, maybe physically or long term? Are you concerned about that in any way? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, I think the science has started to come out and emerge around our understanding of technology effects, right, on the brain. And it's complicated, right? I mean, I think there's possibly some positive effects, some negative effects. Sure. And I think it's context dependent. But yeah, there's no doubt there's going to be a profound impact, right? And I mean, what we're learning about neuroplasticity is that the way we operate and can again, with routines and consistency, like what are we doing on a regular basis and doing a lot is going to affect how our neurons connect, right? Um, so if you, are, you have a habit of checking your phone every few minutes and you have these habits going on for days and weeks and months and years, they are going to change your brain neural pathways. They're going to change your neurochemistry. And I think we're going to learn like exactly what's happening with that. So I think, yeah, there's, there's so many factors to it. I think one is just a total load idea, right? Which is part of the mm. arousal thing, <clears throat> which means, yeah, we're just getting too much. We're getting too much information and it's distracting us. And we're, you know, trying to multitask with switching from one app to another. We've got, you know, um, two devices on the table and three screens. I mean, as I'm looking at my table here. Right. Um, And so it's just, you know, it's the cognitive load aspect of it. There's, like you said, kind of the dopamine award, addictive behavioral components to it. There's the, um, you know, they're talking about things where it's affecting our memory, right? Because we no longer need to try to remember things. We just go to our devices so what's that doing to kind of our memory banks, right? So, yeah. yeah, I think many, many people are quite concerned about long-term effects of these devices, and especially in children. And I think it's very important for us to learn how to use these tools wisely because they're not going away. That's right. They're very, very useful. But how do we use them wisely? And how, how do we be aware of when they are causing problems? And that's part of the awareness piece and being sensitive enough with your body and thinking, you know, this is probably affecting me in a negative way and I need to make some adjustments to how I use my technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people at first think I'm just saying we need to turn off all the technology and live in the forest or something. And I I mean, I'm a technologist. I use technology all the time. I think it's really getting... You, understanding, um, even if it's not social media and our news and things, a, a lot of the tools are, are are using dopamine as a as a tool to make them more engaging. Even our work tools, so even our chat tools. So just understanding how, what those impacts are and and limiting and learning to limit and manage those effectively and being aware of what's going on there, um, to me is super important. Uh, one of the things, as just in a bit of an aside, but we. I also think that when people are really unfocused in their work day, they're never really getting below the surface of their work. They're never really going deep. That's that's that becomes a morale issue. That becomes a purpose issue um, when you don't feel connected to what you're doing because uh, you're you're so uh, scattered, I guess, so much. But I think what you've just described uh, it's a really good summary too. Is basically total load, meaning, and what you said there is you you talked about. Uh, the amount of information we're taking in and it's just reaching a point where we're, we're taking in too much information, probably not having any time to process. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think there's, there's that overload, just total, total amount of information. And I think also the quality of quality of information, I think is really, really, really important. And I think just the way, um, things are delivered to us from the media. It's a lot of quick sound bites, short things. And so it's, yeah. So I think it's a, it's an overload of just information in general, but the quality of information is really, really important. And that, um, yeah, the way we browse and swipe through things, it's just, 
it, you just go through so many different things, different topics or whatever, and you're just jumping from different you know, topics to, to another, which I think, yeah, from a deeper level, as you just mentioned, Steve, like I am concerned as many people are, is that we are, we're doing a lot of superficial type of thinking and processing, but we're not going deep. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be a problem. And, you know, people are not reading books. People have no patience to read a hundred page novel anymore, let alone just a longer article. Um, our, yeah. We're so distracted. Our attention spans are so short. Um, and that can't be good for us um, just from, you know, work and cognitive performance, but just think overall. Um, kind of from a societal level, I guess. Yeah. Right. I'm interested if you're seeing, because I'm, I'm really concerned about that, you know, on a sort of social political level, I see uh, because people's attention span is so short, there's no real ability to have a in-depth conversation about complex issues and and it often becomes very reactionary um and group think you know people i think like people don't know a lot of people don't know this but the brain is naturally a late trying to be a, as lazy as possible to conserve energy it it it's it's wired that way so it seems to me that social media gives us this or or, or these kind of quick sound bites sort of environment we're in with information often leads people to I guess being lazy about understanding the issues deeply and therefore being fairly reactionary or just forming an opinion based on headlines. Um, and that's, I think, getting in the way of progress around key issues. Are you like, do you see that in, in your field? Do you see that happening in terms of what, how the narratives are shaped in terms of what people are paying attention to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I think on, on different levels, I think there's, it plays out. I mean, I think, the big piece that I'm thinking about and, and definitely hear about is that, yeah, and it relates to kind of this mind noise thing. And I think I would call this, some people are calling this kind of noisy brain, right? Mm. So there's just a lot of noise. Um, and this noisy brain is potentially going to be linked to a lot of you know, not so great outcomes. And I think one thing that people are thinking about is that this kind of noisy brain, like just too much stuff, like superficial, but not really linked or integrated, um, maybe leading to neurocognitive issues in the future. And there's some thought around that linking to Alzheimer's, which is frightening to kind of think about the projections of uh, Alzheimer's into the next few decades. And one of the thoughts is this noisy brain. Um, so we're not doing ourselves any favors, again, by just this overexposure to lots of pieces of information that aren't really, like you said, the narrative, like the actual integration of it isn't really there. It's just like just a lot of stuff that is a lot of its noise. Yeah, um, it totally is. You know, and, and I think, I know you talk about this a lot and certainly I talk about this a lot is why really this whole mindfulness and meditation piece really is the a very very necessary counterbalance to what we're experiencing you know in our modern world mm-hmm. what does you know how do you describe mindfulness to someone who is new to it what how would you define it yeah i mean i think first level of that is really just having awareness of paying attention and what are you paying attention to? Um, yeah, just linking it a bit more to medical things. I mean, ADHD um, on all levels is just epidemic, right? I mean, we're seeing this in our kids, but AD, adult ADHD, I mean, the diagnosis is increasing, I think, more in part by people are more, you know, recognize this condition. But I think people do think overall um, there's a lot more people with ADHD and definitely people are having real problems Mm -hmm. with it and are needing treatment. But I think in general, I think it's pervasive (laughs) in our society right now. um, This kind of attention deficit hyperactive activity. Do you feel like a lot of it, uh, do you, sorry to interrupt. Do you feel like a lot of that ADHD and, and like you say, there's, there's a range of cases, but do you think a lot of that could be fairly simple, um, in, in interventions in terms of daily habits and, and routines and things that would would yeah. counteract that? Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And so, I mean, I think a lot of our modern habits don't, don't help for sure, you know, and I think for many people who, you know, don't have more serious forms of ADHD, just this, this stuff we're talking about, like routines and synchronizing to natural rhythms, um, paying attention to your mind, like what are you paying attention to? And um, is absolutely, absolutely critical. Hmm. And uh, where, where, how do people start with mindfulness in your, in your, like, where would you have someone start uh, in terms of that? Is it, is it with meditation or is there other practices that you'd start with and work up to, or how do you, what, how do you advise that? Yeah, I think it depends on the person, right? Some people are ready for something, some other people are not. Um, but I think we just kind of introduced a concept and whatever seems to me maybe the next step, like the incremental thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some people, maybe that's, that's some simple breath work, just becoming aware of the breath um, is really powerful and simple. Um, for other people who you know enjoy the outdoors is just introducing that next time they go for a walk, like just to pay more of attention to things and maybe not listen to a podcast or just you know try to be quiet and, and listen and pay attention. So even those you know those can begin you know starts other people, yep, they're ready for actually trying to explore you know meditation or more formal practice, but wherever people are, right? We just kind of start them and just kind of incrementally, yeah, get them to yeah. explore. I think it's so important that people know that mindfulness doesn't necessarily mean learning how to sit cross-legged yeah. for long periods of time, right? It really can happen in small doses throughout your day, and it's mm-hmm. definitely something we introduce throughout the program in different ways, which is your exactly what you're just describing: getting out for walks without podcasts and audiobooks and, and yeah. information sources coming at you. So you, you get a little bit of time to, to just decompress as well. Besides even being aware, just time for, for decompression. Mm-hmm. Um, that that kind of makes me think about, uh, we've talked about sleep, but um, one of the things that, that is a key tenant of the program is talking about working in, in cycles throughout the day. And I don't know how familiar you are with the ultradian rhythm or it goes by a few other names. You might have a different name for it, but this idea that we we sort of have as well, like we have a twenty four hour cycle, this this uh, circadian rhythm, but we also have an ultradian rhythm, which is you know, when we're sleeping, the different cycles of sleep, but when we're awake, the different cycles of our energy, and um, they kind of like we have this cycle that goes throughout the day. So one of the things we talk a lot about is trying to to pay attention to that to work in these in these rhythms of about 90 minutes and or less if if that's too long to focus on one thing but uh, so there's that component and then the other component is just really making sure that you're building rests into those cycles um so that you're you're regularly taking mental breaks as well as some physical breaks um can you speak a little bit about that like what what comes up for you with any of that Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I know a little bit about the Altradian rhythm, not not tons, but it makes complete sense. Like as I was mentioning before, our body definitely works in rhythms and cycles, mm-hmm. right? And so I think, yeah, what we're understanding is, especially like, you know, the nighttime cycles, it does run, they're about 90 to, you know, 120 minutes, right? We cycle from, you know, levels one and two, and then we go into stages three and four of sleep, and then we get bounced back up into lighter levels of sleep. And then we cycle through that through the night, right? And so I think that's where the scientific basis of thinking that there is some kind of cycles around this 90 minute, 110, 120 minutes. And I think most people recognize that, right? Like it's hard to sustain truly focused attention for really more than, you know, 90 minutes um, for a lot of us. So I think it makes complete sense that, you know, you try to chunk your work into these blocks of time and I know you talk about this as, you know, turn off notifications and tell your team, like, I'm going to work for this 90 minutes and without free of distractions. But after that, then you want to change it up, right? Then you need to take a break, get up, do some stretching, walk, whatever. And again, that is probably clearing some of the, the load or some of the byproducts from this processing that's going on. Mm-hmm. And if that cleans out 
you know, because you're doing some walking or breath work or whatever, then it's going to allow you to reset, right? It's kind of like this load level. I mean, I, I, I talk a lot about this load level in terms of um, it can be anything, right? And you could say cognitive load, but it's also physical load as well. And it, you're going to build up this cognitive load. And then, but if you take a break at 90 minutes, your body can clear some of that load. And then you go back and your capacity is back again, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, I know this because I work in the ER and we don't have anything like this. And so by the end of a six hour, seven hour shift, I mean, you're just cooked because your cognitive load is just going higher and higher and higher, more and more patients. And you haven't had a chance to clear and then you start getting closer to some some of your thresholds where it's just you're you know you're redlining um and then that's not good because your performance is going to start to go down so yeah these cycles help you prevent you just kind of escalating to this you know red line and then and then kind of decompensating right so yeah it makes tons of sense right yeah, and that redlining is is to me feels like it's like this micro form of burnout that you're basically reaching a point where you're fried and then you're mm -hmm. continuing to try to get stuff done, but your capacity is so low at that point. Mm -hmm. um, you just end up burning time. Like I think one of the key concepts is like the capacity of the for your the quality of your work, the quality of your time is a you know direct inverse correlation to the quantity of time you're spending doing your work, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that the language that last time we talked that I it struck, you know, I, I try and remember it now all the time is I think people think of, talk about lifespan a lot and you talk about health span as well. And, and first of all, could you just define what health span means to you? Yeah, it's, it's a great term that's kind of emerged really, because I think you know, in some ways we want to live as long as we can, you know, just from a chronologic number. But on the other hand, we don't want to be living in poor function with illness and debility for that time, right? That quality of life, it doesn't matter if you add additional 10 years of years of life if the quality is poor, right? So no one's really interested in that, right? So really what we all want is health span. So you know, trying to increase the years of life in good quality of life and vitality and functional, functional capacity, right? So, yeah, so that's the right term. I mean, no one wants to be in a nursing home for 10 years and not be able to do things they love. We want, you know, 10 additional years of good function, Yeah. right? So that's really the definition of health span. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I think about it, I'm, I'm, just turned 40. I mean, I, I think about health span right now, not only in, you know, obviously I'm not at a place where I'm getting close to some disability or anything like that physically, but I also just think about the quality of how I feel every day right now. So for the next couple of decades, as I'm still in my, my sort of prime uh, work years and things like that, I think about health span in that context as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like everything we're talking about is, it's all built on foundations and incremental changes and things that build, right? So, yeah, if you want to have at that other end of, you know, the lifespan to have high quality living, it starts from, yeah, I mean, as early as possible, but certainly, you know, in our 40s, I would say is a pivotal time um, to begin to pay more attention to that. And, you know, health span's predicated on so many things, obviously, right? Like the physical body and nu nutrient um, sufficiency, um, maintenance of muscle mass and bone mass, preservation of cognitive function. I mean, all these aspects, um, unfortunately, do begin to decline, right? Um, you know, typically around our 40s. And the more we're aware of where we're at and the more things we can do to promote um, you know, more, a higher functioning, your trajectory is going to be different, right? Even though there's going to be some decline that we haven't been able to change at this point, it's going to be much higher trajectory point, right? Yeah. And it seems to me like, you know, um, I think, I think learning to, to reduce stress in your life is so important for the quality of your life on a daily basis. And um, so I think that's really important. But I, when, 
when I also think about the, the length of my life and the health span of my life, to me, especially as someone who's an entrepreneur who's driving pretty hard all the time, but I think for everybody these days, the level of stress is such a key factor in health span because and in in quality of life. So, um, does, do you agree with that? No, absolutely. I think that's the. I would say that's the biggest thing that's facing us. I mean, beyond the obvious things about eating well and healthy and exercising, I think the biggest thing is really stress and dealing with stress. And the science around this stuff is pretty is pretty robust. I think the long term effects of a chronic stress response in your body is linked to so many so many um, root issues of these chronic diseases of aging. So we're talking about Alzheimer's, neurocognitive decline, um, heart disease, stroke, which is really you know, um, related to inflammation, but we're learning how stress is a big factor in these cardiovascular diseases. Um, the links with arthritis and links even potentially with cancer. So yeah, these kind of chronic diseases of aging, which affect most of us, um, very, very strong links to inflammatory um, mechanisms and chronic stress plays a role in fueling this fire of chronic inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've talked about a lot of them in this conversation, but are there any other specific things that, you know, small things people can do around stress mitigation? Like I think we've already talked about, you know, quality sleep, taking rests, working in cycles, uh, technology exposure, like a lot of those kind of components. Are there other, other things that come to mind for you that are key in terms of managing stress? Or reducing yeah. stress. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other one, we haven't talked as much about, I mean, it's obvious, but I think it's really, really important, exercise. Um, exercise is so good in terms of relieving stress, um, in terms of reducing stress response, but also decreasing inflammation. Exercise is probably the most important anti-inflammatory mechanism and also antioxidant mechanism that we have. And so all those things are going to lead to increased stress resilience, right? I mean, not just, yeah, just physical resilience as well as mental and emotional resilience as well. So that's a big piece. And the exercise piece, I like to think about in terms of gross physical. So that's, you know, aerobic, getting your heart pumping, the cardiorespiratory benefits, maintenance of muscle mass and bone mass is so important. But the other piece is what we call is the subtle physical. And the subtle physical, it's less well understood, certainly from Western science perspective, but definitely in all the traditions in the East. Um, but there's something about things like yoga, Tai Chi, Qigong, these Eastern practices, which combined physical movements with a lot of stretching, range of motion, balance, with a meditative focus and attention to synchronization of breath. And there's really some fascinating science that's coming out to say that there is something more than just doing physical exercise when you actually do some of these practices, which we call, you know, kind of mind-body practices. So I think, yeah, that's a big, big piece um, around, you know, I think for me, those are some of the most important practices for all of us to explore and learn to help us reduce the stress response in our body. Mm Mm-hmm. That's that's really interesting. I obviously yoga has become so big, and some of these other things are starting to emerge too. And how how would you how do you make sure if you're doing yoga that you are getting some of the benefits where you're starting to bridge the gap between the mind body and things like that? Like, do you think there's there's probably some specific focus there? Do you think? Yeah, I think you could definitely do all the the postures and twist yourself in all these different shapes and right. be completely distracted in your mind. Um, so yeah, you're probably going to get the physical benefits of that. I mean, you're probably stretching and twisting and there's lots of things going on probably with your fascia, but you're probably, yes, not getting some of the benefits, which we're thinking about more from this top-down mechanism, um, which is this attentional, deliberate focus, which you know, is more, you know, uh, connected with, you know, more of a formal meditation practice. So mm-hmm. I think, I think yoga spans 
the physical part and then the more mental cognitive benefits. And I think the more we move and combine the two, like the more meditative focus you have, synchronization of breath you have in your yoga practice, the more you're going to get those additional benefits. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of bottom up, which is this movement of muscles, joints, contraction, um, stretching, torsional things of fascia, which is a whole other fascinating topic, um, and what that does to your physiology. But then you're marrying this top-down attentional focus, which is changing brainwave patterns and probably neurochemistry in your brain. Right, yeah. so it's a combination of the two, which probably makes it um, have those additional benefits. Right, so really making sure that you are deeply focused, that you're ground, like very present in your practice, that you're, um, yeah, really paying attention mm-hmm. uh, through the practice would would be important there. Mm-hmm. Interesting, and I was just as as I was thinking about the work you do and the amount of people you see, you have a unique perspective, I think, in terms of so this 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 podcast is is typically a more sort of personally personal narrative podcast, and I and I'd love to actually have another conversation with you on that level because there, mm-hmm. there's lots to to go there. But in in terms of your practice and seeing um, so many people come to you uh, with different physical and mental ailments, or maybe they're all the same thing, you know what. I guess what have you what have you learned from observation around what it means to to live a good life in terms of of quality of life? What are the what are the what are the key factors? Do you think? Uh, yeah, how would you answer that question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it does go back to, I mean, there's there's lots of components to you know overall well being, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, physical health, emotional spiritual, they're all components of it, right? I mean, I have to say, I think what I've learned over kind of 10 years of looking at this from a much more holistic, integrative standpoint is you can exercise like, you know, like an Olympic athlete, you can eat, you know, the best organic everything foods, you can take hundreds of dollars of supplements, you can do all that stuff. But if you have a scattered mind, you aren't aware of how you're thinking and some of your patterns, which lead you to um, places which are not so ideal for yourself. I've learned that that piece is 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 ultimately the place where we're going to get well-being, and you need to have a good functioning body that feels good and. You can do the things you want to do and it's performing well. But if we're not paying attention to the nature of our mind and connection to deeper things and connection with yourself and others, um, so what? You know, it doesn't matter. And and I definitely see that a lot in practice where you know people are still really struggling in terms of attaining um, this sense of well-being and peace and um, equanimity, even though they're doing everything almost obsessively from a physical standpoint. So like everything, it's really a balance between the two. Um, But I think the nature of mind is, it's a little more elusive. It's harder to pinpoint. It's sometimes a blind spot for a lot of us and we don't really pay enough attention to it. And it's hard to measure. There's no easy test for it. So I've found from myself, and for my patients is that looking towards the connections of our nervous system and how it affects our body, our physical health, and our emotional balance, and even our connection to ourselves and deeper things um, do all play into a lot of our physical health. And we have to pay attention to it. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's like, like you say, it's such an elusive thing and it's like a soft art in terms mm-hmm. of yeah my experience i guess with that is is you you need to create practices to become aware of your emotions your your and how your emotions affect your physical physicality mm-hmm. your thinking your patterns like to me meditation seems to me the obviously the the most important or the most the most powerful tool in that toolkit for me personally 
but there's lots of other things that to me, it's just trying to be as present as possible as much of the time. Um, would you agree with that or how would you characterize that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I kind of think of this, this kind of realm maybe in a few different levels. I think number one is just becoming more and more aware of our patterns, right? Mm-hmm. Our neural patterns. Um, because a lot of these patterns are just, they're just habitual, right? And we pick them up either through early childhood programming um, or early experiences. And we just, they become patterns of habit and we become maybe more reactive and more rigid than maybe really serves us. And so it's becoming aware of those things is the first thing. And part of that first level is just learning how to regulate um, some of this stuff, right? So that we're not um, being um, pushed off into uh, you know, full flight or fright kind of stress mode, or even into kind of a rigid and flexible kind of protective mode, right? So just being aware and then regulating. And that again can be just these practices of breath work or mindfulness where we just learn, okay, I'm feeling stressed. I'm feeling, I'm going to some reactive pattern, which I become now aware that's what I do. Um, but let me breathe through this and bring you know, at least try to balance out the nervous system, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the next level beyond that is kind of more deeper level awareness of maybe more deeper subconscious layers and where we see habitual patterns. And that sometimes we need therapists to help us kind of point towards blind spots. And so I think that's like a deeper level around this kind of mindfulness meditation piece. And there's probably a third level, which then starts to get more like, okay, I am connected to something much greater and this construct of myself and this preservation of self and ego, um, maybe it's not really um, as real as I think it is. And maybe I'm limiting myself from that standpoint. And that's what, you know, a lot of the spiritual traditions talk about. And I think that's like a third level where it's like, okay, maybe this is not as, yeah, like it's not, I'm not at this, um, isolated self, um, really, it's just really an illusion, right? So mm. that's kind of roughly how I think about that journey. Yeah, that's a great summary. And it's interesting, we we call our program the foundations program, because to me, it is addressing those foundational aspects of our daily routines and habits, how we're taking care of our our mind and our body in order to start being more aware and being more reflective. And to me, that's like the foundations and what you've just Mm -hmm. described going up the ladder in terms of Mm -hmm. really getting into deeper spirituality, but it's hard to have a meaningful interaction with spirituality or the the bigger picture as you talk about it um, without having that foundation there, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think everything builds upon everything. Yeah. And and again, you see this wisdom in, in some of the more ancient traditions um, in yoga and Chinese medicine. And, you know, I think you have to look after your body. I mean, if your body's, you know, not functioning and has pains and all these things, it's going to be harder to, to build upon, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just becoming aware and attending to these things. And we just build incrementally um, with awareness, and yeah, that's, that's probably the journey. That's great. I really appreciate your time today. That was a really interesting conversation. Thanks. Yeah. Awesome, Steve. Well, I knew it was going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, always enjoy speaking to you and be very happy to yeah, join you on yeah, any other time. Yeah. Yeah. I think an, another conversation I'd love, I'd love to dig more into your personal story and your, and your personal development around these, these aspects, but this has been so valuable. So thanks again. And, uh, Yeah, we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. All right. Thanks, man. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can follow along with my life on Instagram at Steve Rio. And for show notes and more information about the podcast, visit natureofwork.co forward slash podcast or find us on Instagram at natureofwork.co. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, how to increase the quality of your work while lowering stress and anxiety, you definitely want to check out Nature of Work. 
It's a personal operating system that has transformed my work and the quality of my life and how I feel every day. With that, I'll leave you. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.